Okay, so this morning, uh, my name is Ed Anton, by the way. I'm the, the minister guy here. And we are going to begin, I'm so excited about this, because for a lot of you, it's your favorite book. We're going to begin our study in the book of Philippians. So, go ahead and turn over there. I'll find my way. So this year what we've been doing is making our way through what are called the prison epistles. Epistle is just a fancy word for saying letter. Paul sent three, four letters, actually four letters, while he was in an imprisonment. We're not sure if this imprisonment occurred at the, at the kind of the very end of the book of Acts or, or whether it occurs somewhere when, uh, when he's getting ready to be kind of trans, transferred over to Rome. Uh, most people think that his imprisonment occurred in the very, very end of the, uh, the book of Acts. And in, during this imprisonment, he wrote letters to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and to a guy named Philemon. And we're going to be reading, again, of course, from, from uh, Philippians now. But I want to give a little bit of a background, even as we get ready to go through all of this. Because I think what we're going to find is that as, as we go through this book, we're going to find that we probably have more in common with the life circumstances and situations of the Philippians than most other places that received correspondence from inspired source in, in the Bible. And Philippians, in a lot of ways, has some interesting parallels to Hampton Roads itself. And we'll, we'll kind of get into it in, in a little bit, of course, through there. But go ahead and, and uh, look with me over in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there for a moment. Uh, Paul is, is writing with Timothy. Of course, he is writing to the saints, God's holy people. Uh, gathered together there. The word together, the, the idea of partnership will be really weaved through this whole letter. Community, commonality, communion. It is a big theme through it all. But the other real big theme is, is that he's got a joy partnership with these folks because this is the church that is probably the church that is most chummy with Paul. I mean, they have a real friendship relationship that weaves its way through so many of the different passages in the Bible itself. And uh, Philippi is located, well, that's, that's a map down there, but just to kind of uh, bring this to light a little bit. First, let me give you a timeline of Paul and his interactions with this church over there. Uh, you can see that Paul goes on one of his more famous missionary journeys. He had three, maybe four. And on the third missionary, second missionary journey, he makes his way over into Philippi. Uh, that, that occurs around 50 AD. It's the missionary journey where Paul sees a man in a vision. While he, Paul's in Asia. He's not left Asia. The gospel's not left Asia, as far as for, from Paul's hand anyway. And there's a man beckoning him in a vision, saying, come on over here to Europe so that you can come and, and bring the, in the word. 
And, and it's on this missionary journey that Paul then leaves Asia, goes into the, the province of Europe, into Macedonia, which is uh, the, the site of Philippi. From there, he goes on to some of the more famous places that you might be familiar with in the book of Acts. Uh, from there, he makes his way over to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica down to Berea, from Berea down to Athens, from Athens down to Corinth, from Corinth over to Ephesus. So that's the, that missionary journey. And this is the beginning of it in, in Europe with this kind of call to come on over to Philippi. And that's how the gospel ended up at this very place. This probably happened around 50 AD. So you can kind of you know, piece it together about 20 years uh, after the ascension of Christ and the church has been developing. So around 50 AD. Now this letter, if, if, if Paul is writing, as you see on this timeline, as late as, let's say, 55 to 62 AD, probably let's put it around 62 AD, then in 12 years from the founding of the church to this point, what's interesting is it must be a rather healthy church because in those 12 years, they already have what's, what's um, referred to here as overseers and deacons. And an overseer is also another way of saying an elder. Episkopos is the, is the uh, word in the, in the Greek. It is the idea of the person who, scopus, you know, he's, he's looking out and around, you know, and, 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 and the, to have developed elders and deacons in a, in a church that's maybe only 10 years old is a great sign of maturity of this church. And so what Paul is encountering here is a church that's in a pretty good place. Throughout the letter, you're going to find that there's not a lot of division issues. There aren't factions that are forming in the church. Yeah, there are two sisters that don't get along, but hey, when is that not going on? And, and, and there also doesn't seem to be some sort of a besetting heresy either that he's trying to fight. So in general... Things are actually, you know, kind of at a, at a good place. And now he's trying to encourage this church to stay steadfast in the cool things that you've learned about Jesus. And likewise, to continue to grow in the things that are going to help you to take it even to the next level. And also, he reminds them of, of one kind of crushing pressure uh, to, to help them to stay strong along the way. Now, anyway, when Paul makes his way over to, to Philippi, one of the things that's probably most notable about this city is... This, this is the road that runs right through Main Street of Philippi. And that road in Latin down below is Via Ignatia or Ignatia Hodos in, in, the, uh, in the Greek. And it's the Ignatian Way. It's the big east-west road of the Roman Empire. It's a big deal. And it, and it runs all the way across. And the main reason that Philippi has significance is not because it's some great city. It isn't, but it happens to be situated on this very important road. As a matter of fact, here we can, here we can see, let me see if I can uh, do a little something, something here. So here would have been where Paul was when he received the call to come on over to Philippi, right? And so he, he makes his way over and now this then becomes this line across here. That is the Ignatian way. And it goes right all the way across all this uh, major land and ends up over here in Greece. So this, this area here with Thessalonica is Greece. So it makes its way from Macedonia over to Greece. Very important road. Now, Philippi, um, let, let's go ahead and, by the way, turn on back to Acts chapter 16, where these things occur. Acts 16, here we go. 
Paul is making his way on this missionary journey. In verse 7, it says, When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Christ would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia. But by the way, in Greek, the Y was an U sound. Obviously, we, we pronounce it as a, an E sound. So it's Mysia if we're reading it in English, Mysia if we're reading it in Greek, but we're reading it in English. So let's go with that. They passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, and Troas is that, that first dot that I, that I drew right there, right? See, there we go, Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. Neapolis would be this little port right there. Uh, Philippi is not right on the sea, it's about eight miles inland from the sea, because it's on the road. More important, again, for, for Philippi's importance here, that it's, that it's on the road, uh, rather than on the sea. Uh, so they went to Neapolis, where they, they landed, um, and from there we traveled to Philippi. Here's an important sentence. A Roman colony, and the NIV writes, the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, even the NIV has a, a, a small subscript to this, saying the text and meaning of the Greek for the leading city of that district are uncertain. Reason being is it's mostly uh, translated in, in many modern translations as it is the city of the first district of Macedonia. Macedonia had four districts. And Philippi was a city in the first district. You could read it as it was the first city of Macedonia, or it was a city in the first district of Macedonia. Most seem to think, see it as being just a city in the first district of Macedonia. Again, uh, reinforcing the idea, not some big, great cosmopolitan place, but just situated in a, in a rather important place along the way. Uh, and, and so I'm going to leave this here for a second. And now let's, let's go back here. And, and take a, a look a little bit more about, about Philippi. Now, Philippi on this road, uh, again, not much that really commends it. Even archaeological evidence doesn't have a whole lot there. And, and matter of fact, if you were to take a tour, we're going to take a tour next year of, of the major cities throughout Macedonia, Greece, and, and Asia, Turkey. That, that whole map there will we'll kind of cover all the major biblical cities there. But we won't go to Philippi. Because there's not much that's really uncovered there, because there wasn't a whole lot that was there in the beginning. But it doesn't mean that it is, doesn't have some very interesting things about Philippi. And here is one of the most interesting things about Philippi. It was the site of the most important final four in the history of the world. Uh, you may say, no, Indianapolis, Indiana is the site of the most important final four. No, Philippi was the biggest final four in the history of civilization, at least Western Civ. And what happened is that after Julius Caesar was assassinated, and if you had to labor through Shakespeare's work, you, you know a little bit about this, but nonetheless, when he was assassinated, two factions immediately formed. The armies of Brutus and Cassius, Brutus of the et tu brute fame of, of Julius Caesar, and Cassius as Jan Cassius has a lean and hungry look, uh, meaning that he was ambitious. Those are Shakespeare's words. 
And, and so you had Brutus and Cassius who murdered Julius Caesar. And then you had Mark Antony and Octavian who then had the, the rest of the, of, of the emperor's uh, troops. Now, there was, there was no emperor yet. Julius Caesar was not actually an emperor. In, in, he wasn't declared that. He sought to be that. That's why he was assassinated in, in the midst of all of that. And, and, but now it's set up these factions, again, led, led by these, the, these you know, heavyweights of history, Antony and Octavian. Octavian would later become Augustus Caesar, by the way, the first Caesar, and, and, and by Brutus and Cassius. Now, in this battle royale, Brutus and Cassius were defeated. And in defeating them, what then occurred was the, uh, the, the troops of Octavian, of Antony and Octavian, for the great victory that they uh, received, were then given massive land rights in Philippi. And Philippi was generally a, a farming area. And these then were veteran soldiers that were Roman citizens. Now this part is actually fairly important for us to kind of have a good mindset when we read the rest of this letter. So this whole area is populated by very patriotic, very loyal Roman soldier, veteran Roman soldiers that have been given, and this is a big deal, Roman citizenship. We'll see that there's a, a conversation that Paul has with a Roman soldier who, who asks, were you born a Roman soldier? I had to uh, buy my, my Roman citizenship. Very precious commodity to be a Roman citizen. Now, all of these troops would have been massively grateful to be granted Roman citizenship and granted land rights. This granting of all of this would have been the word caudis or grace. So all of these troops that have now settled in 42 AD in this area are the beneficiaries of the patronage of, the, of, of, of Antony and Octavian and they are filled with gratitude to be able to populate this area. And during this time, it becomes an official Roman colony. To be official colony, that's a rather big deal. It's as though you are a, a real piece of Rome in another part of the world. And because of the, kind of the, the, the history with Rome, these are the most fiercely loyal and patriotic Roman citizens that you would, that you would see throughout the empire. Now, it wasn't just a final four, because a final four needs to come down to a final two, right? And so, after Antony and Octavian were victors, we then had the championship match. And this championship match changed the Roman Empire for its trajectory of its course. Antony then squared off against Octavian a second civil war in just a dozen years. This whole area then was the site of it. The, the, the place where these troops came and where they all squared off was in this Ignatian Pass. Now there were mountains that extended down the, the, the landmass there, but they, they came into a pass right where this road was, right here in Philippi. That's why it becomes such an important place. But now Antion and Octavian square off against one another, and Octavian is the victor. Not only is he the triumph, the, the, the victor of all of this, but he then is ultimately recognized as Kaiser Augustus, the, the, the Caesar Augustus. And, and, and as such, renames Philippi, which was originally named for Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, that city 
Philippi under, under uh, uh, Philip of Macedonia was founded in 386 B.C. Uh, when the Romans came through and swept it through and cleaned it out, basically, through their two civil wars, it was renamed Philippi. Well, it's the same name, right? Not necessarily, because this Philippi was named for the daughter of Caesar Augustus. And his daughter's name was, was uh, Julia Augustus uh, Pilipenis. And, and it was officially, the official title is the Colonia Julia, they didn't have a J, so put an I there, uh, Colonia Julia Augustus uh, Philippenis. And this was then Philippi. And at this point now, with Octavian, or, or Caesar Augustus as the victor, all of the defeated troops of Mark Antony now are in a terrible place. Because if you're defeated in battle, what you normally become is a slave. But rather than making them slaves, what Octavian did, or what Augustus did, is he granted them rights, no longer in Rome to have land, but he granted them rights to go to Philippi. So there's a second uh, population of settling of Philippi with not just the victors at this point, but now with the vanquished Roman soldiers. And he again allowed them to be not only citizens, but landowners as well. So now what do you have populating this area? You have people with gratitude overflowing. And it was all at the magnificence and the beneficence and the a patronage of Caesar Augustus. And what he had given them was grace. Cadiz was what was, was given to them. This was what made the world go round. Uh, if, you, if you read Seneca, Cicero, and all of their different expositions on the idea of the of the um, fabric of society, the thing that made all of, of society function was this whole system of patronage or benefaction. That is, someone who is in a position of some sort of authority or power or privilege giving to someone else the opportunity for a leg up in, in their life. And, and when that occurs, that forms a bond and a loyalty and a fabric of society that is unbreakable. Why? Because in this society that, that we have there, it was all under the kind of the ethos or the culture of shame and honor. And all, the, the main currency of where you stood in life was based on how much honor you had and how much shame you could avoid. And that's how you walk down the street with some sort of standing, was this balance of shame versus honor. And one of the greatest shames that you could ever have cling to you was that you were a man or a woman that received grace and were not grateful for it and were not reciprocating it back to the one who gave it to you. And this is very important because it also, I think, informs the power of grace in all of Paul's letters. Because this is a, an entire society that knows that we are founded upon the foundation of grace. The grace of Caesar Augustus. And as a result, they were a fiercely patriotic people. And at this time, in the East, began under Caesar Augustus... The worship of the emperor. Now, if you if you look at what remains of Philippi in in the architectural uh, the um, uh, archaeological ruins, 
There are temples to the common cast of characters. Zeus, Dionysius, Artemis, uh, they're all there. But the most important temples are those that are erected for the Caesars. For, for Claudius and for Augustus in particular. Because what, what really was the, the, the place of honor now among the Philippians were not looking to the gods for their deliverance, but looking to the emperor for their deliverance. Because look at what the emperor has done now for these Philippians. He has actually granted them favor. Uh, during times of famine, it would be the emperor who would organize relief and send it to them so that they could be sustained, and, and they would. Uh, it was also the emperor who w brought about the most important thing in society, peace. And this is the time where Augustus establishes the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's a long and abiding peace that is rather important. But it is, is what, it is what you went to the temple to pray for. If there was an imposing army, you were there. Zeus deliver us, Artemis deliver us for, from what it might be. But now, yes, they tipped their hat to, to Artemis and to Zeus, but they knew who really buttered their bread. And they knew who it is that they really needed to honor. And they knew who it was that they really needed to put their trust in. And so as a result of that, this, this is what then began to arise with what's called the imperial cult. Or the worship of the emperor as deity. It actually began, interestingly, in the very spot where Peter, it's called Caesarea Philippi, uh, where, where Peter, Philip... Um, Another Philip, a king of uh, son of Herod, had built a temple at a spot where Jesus said to his followers, who do you say that I am? And it's at that spot where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are Lord. For, for Peter to proclaim that under the temple to the worship of, of Augustus Caesar in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, that... In Luke 9, that's a fantastic contrast to be able to say, with all of this intimidating you, you, Peter, were able to say, Jesus is Lord. Because at that time, the great test of loyalty, your loyalty card was, would you say, Caesar is Lord? And if you did not say Caesar is Lord, bad things were coming your way. Because that meant that you were the ultimate shame in that society. After all that Augustus Caesar has done for you, to not honor him, to not reciprocate the grace, the caudice that had been yours, to, to be so ungrateful, you were viewed by all of common society then as one that was undermining the very fabric that created civility and community and loyalty. And to no longer then say Caesar is Lord made you extremely suspect. And it's why that the two books that we have that make kind of a big deal about proclaiming Caesar is Lord versus Jesus is Lord, and that, that is, of course, the call of, of the Christian, the two books are Romans and, and uh, Philippians. Because they're the two books that are obviously fiercely Roman. Roman because it's Rome. Philippi... Because it is little Rome. But maybe even more enthusiastic about Rome than Rome itself. And definitely extremely enthusiastic about Caesar. And it, 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 is, 
It is the great tension that you would walk down the street and someone would stop you and you would then have the test of citizenship, the test of, of loyalty, the test of, of uh, patriotism. And would you then, as a Christian, say, Caesar is Lord with your mouth? And think of the temptation to do that. It would be massive, right? Because you would say to yourself, I think I would say this to myself, and hopefully I wouldn't go this route, but I, but I know I would start justifying, well, you know what? I still have two more kids at home. You know, Debbie, I, you know, I, I, I think I need to like kind of be there for her. And, and Should I have my head cut off today or not? <laughs> so how about if I just say... Caesar is Lord with my mouth, but in my heart, I really believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Because isn't that what really matters, what I believe in my heart? And I can, you know, just kind of let these words fall out of my mouth, but, but really believe in my heart. And then I live to fight another day. Wouldn't that be terrific? And, and that was the overbearing pressure throughout this society. Uh, we're going to come back to Acts 16 in a minute, but go ahead and turn over to Romans 10. Next book over. Romans 10. There the Bible says. We start in verse, um, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Important, important idea here, right? For there is no difference between Jew, Gentile. The same Lord is Lord to all, richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, to think, if I'm really going to be saved today, it's not by saying Caesar is Lord and saving my neck. If you really want to be saved, it's in those moments of truth that you still proclaim Jesus is Lord. And whenever we have a, a, a time of even public confession or someone is about to be baptized and they say those words with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Yeah. It is a massive ovation that spontaneously erupts from everyone witnessing that. And why is it? Because everyone there realizes that's a person that is now all in for Christ. They're not Lord anymore. Whatever else could have been vying for lordship in their life is no longer Lord anymore. And come hell or high water, whatever they're going to hold to that confession that Jesus is Lord. By the way, some people will look at this passage and they take it totally out of context here. Thinking, I mean, this is not a passage about how it is that you are initially saved. You know, you just say those words. It's what happens when you're confronted by the pressure of society. But, but, but some, of course, want to take this and not keep it in its context. 
and just say, hey, if you, if you want to be saved, just say Caesar, Jesus is Lord. No, he, he's talking to people that are already saved. Amen. Having been saved, you hold to Jesus as Lord no matter what along the way. It's not some little kind of incantation that you say that takes you from dead in sin to alive in Christ. It is the firm foundation of the way you live your life that you proclaim no matter what pressures come your way. And by the way, in case you want to see how all these people got saved, let's go back to Acts 16 and see how the church was founded there. Because bottom line, what the Philippians face is a standoff. Caesar versus Jesus. And so... In verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea. Oh, I'm sorry, I've already read that. Uh, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, everywhere else Paul's going to go, where does he go first? To a place of prayer or to a synagogue? To a synagogue. There was no synagogue, as best we can tell. And it seems like most of our records show that there was no synagogue even in Philippi until maybe like the 3rd century or so A.D. So this is a very, very Roman place. As a matter of fact, small enough too, perhaps, that it didn't really have the kind of cachet to, to pull in even a Jewish quorum. So the best that they had was, let's go find a place where people are worshiping anyway. This prosuke is, is what they, they talk about, this place of prayer down by the river. Uh, so we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So that became their base of operations in Philippi. And, and this is the very founding of this church that grows into being such a glorious, healthy, wonderful church that we're going to study over the course of the next couple months. Now, but then it's interesting what continues as he gets into the city of Philippi. And let's go ahead and read on. Once while we were go, um, in verse 19. Uh, no, that's not it. Uh, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And that, by the way, becomes the basis of, of uh, all kind of exorcism type approaches. Hopefully, that's something that you won't have intimacy with. <laughs> when her owners realized that her hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, now listen to this, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Their Roman pride is already coming through that they are setting themselves up in such a way to undermine the fabric and loyalty and benefaction and grace that has founded this city by trying to transfer it 
to another Lord. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Of course they would. They are tearing down not the gods, but the God of Caesar Augustus. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and a jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the stocks. It's interesting, one of the few things that is excavated in Philippi is perhaps this prison. So God was good and perhaps preserving that. Uh, not, not much else that's there. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open, everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors were open, drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Why? Because that would be a fantastic shame to, to allow such a thing to occur, especially men who were shaming the great deity of Augustus. Uh, plus, it was probably punishable by death anyway, so he thought, why not go ahead and get this thing done? But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's a weighted phrase. Because Lord was not an unknown phrase there, and it was always associated with Caesar. Believe in the Lord. Wait for it. Wait for it. Jesus. And you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to them and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with orders, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Um, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. And they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, that's a big deal. They were alarmed. Literally, they were fearing. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. They were they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. And as Caesar and Jesus are set in opposition to one another, again and again, the defining establishment of the church was always this great phrase. Jesus is Lord. With that great proclamation, they were baptized into Christ. They went from dead in sin to alive in Christ and formed the foundation of such a radically countercultural church in a city with just abiding pressure for the imperial cult, for Caesar, and yet they stood for Jesus at every single turn. And for us, as, as we read this, keep all of this in mind. Now, here's what's interesting is that we live in a place, too, where it's, it's not as though we have some sort of kind of 
in really kind of crushing pressure of, of other religions. But you know what we have as our crushing pressure? America. Patriotism. Now that, that it's apple pie and moms. And, and, but you know what also that we have as crushing pressure is people that have also bestowed grace upon you. Where you feel like, likewise, I need in reciprocity to really make sure that I'm a man or a woman of honor. Not undermining this relationship and this fabric of, of the favor that you've bestowed upon me. But even as wonderful as some of those connections are, and some of those are even family, which make them difficult, Jesus supersedes all of those. Now they'll all get rearranged and they'll all get subsumed into a, an alignment with Jesus and it's going to be beautiful, but it, it means that you have to have only one Lord in your life. And as you get ready to study this book, study this book, remembering that great profession you made before many witnesses, if indeed you did. Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and was raised again. Jesus is Lord. The very thing that sent shivers through the crowds, applauding spontaneously. That is the basis of the foundation of this church. And nothing was going to knock them off of that very thing. This is what will come our way as we read this book. And I think it is why, as we read this book, even, even before knowing all of this, I knew that this book always resonated with me. There was something about it that seemed to speak to my soul, to my life situation. Because as we read it, we'll, we'll be reminded and we'll study, of course, passage by passage, how it is that it is so applicable to our lives. It's a letter of joy. Joy because we have clarity about who it is that we now serve. Joy because no matter what pressures come our way, there's still the simplicity of knowing all of that fade into obscurity, knowing what it is that is really my life, living for Christ. Paul will say again and again, to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The greatest proclamation in the middle of this letter is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. I get goosebumps even now, even just saying that and knowing that, that these are our brothers and sisters from the first century that I think we're going to connect to in a fantastic way. Only let us attain to what it is that they were. Let us really be in great communion with them, just as they were in communion with one another, in communion with Paul, and most importantly, in communion with Christ. And so, uh, just a simple charge this week, and that is to read Philippians. Amen. All the way through, read Philippians. But at the end of Philippians, we're going to have a kind of a, a fun exercise where we're going to recite Philippians from memory. Now, if one of you can do it all the way through, great. But take a section. Everybody take a section. Uh, overall, you're all going to have a different section that is very meaningful to you. Memorize that section. And at some point, we're going to organize it as we come to the conclusion of this letter, where we are going to then recite the, the book of Philippians as we close out this book as well. So read it, read it, read it. Uh, uh, continue in, in your study of it. And also memorize a section of it. It'll be near and dear to your heart. Amen. Thank you. Amen.